And then he'll overlook all the other stuff that we've done that has offended his holiness and that has broken his commandments and broken his law and broken what he knows as the holiness of God, which he alone is. So we can take our chances and we can do our best and we can try our hardest. Or the second approach is just to be spiritually indifferent. Just to ignore and dismiss the problem. To rationalize either that God isn't God at all, that there is no such thing, or that he's so detached and so inconsistent in his character that how we live doesn't matter. Because if there is a God, he's either going to condemn us all or he's going to accept us all. Then there's a third belief. And it's really the only one that can be characterized as a belief because it requires faith in something that is taught in the Bible, faith in something that has been supported by history, and even though it is so hard to fathom and so hard to explain because it's so amazing that God would do it, it is the only logical and only believable way by which we can be saved. It's salvation by God's intervention. It's salvation by the forgiveness of God because he's loving and he's gracious, not because we've earned enough credits. It's salvation because somebody perfect took the place of all of us who are imperfect and paid the price of our sin so we can be exonerated from its death sentence. It is salvation by Jesus Christ. It's salvation by Christ dying for us and then defeating sin and death and hell forever. It's salvation by God removing sin from us. It's presence, it's control, it's curse, and it's eternal penalty. All of this was accomplished through Jesus Christ, and all of this is accomplished only through Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other. Now let's take our Bibles and look at the passage that explains how all of this was made possible in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to read a fair amount this morning, so thank you for bringing your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get to know the person next to you and tell them to buy you Easter brunch. All right? All of a sudden, you'll become friends or enemies. I don't know which one, but share your Bible, all right? Luke chapter 23, let's start in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all the acquaintances and all the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. The man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to the plan and action to kill him, a man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. Now the woman who had come with him out of the Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now the greatest passage in all of Scripture. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. 
and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And all the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And there's no moment in history that provides the opportunity for complete spiritual change in the life of every person that has ever lived than this moment. In 44 hours, we go from the Son of God being nailed to the cross to His tomb being empty. And the eternal significance of both of those events is greater than we can possibly imagine. The cross is agony, despair, loss of hope, the pain and suffering of sin, the weight of everything that is placed on Christ as He takes our punishment. The empty tomb is victory, joy, hope, freedom, confidence. It means that sin has been defeated. It means that God is gracious. It means that salvation is a reality. Everything that happened around these two events, everything that happened in those 44 hours serves as a powerful symbol of what Christ accomplished. And it all started with the timing of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' crucifixion took place on the Friday before the Jewish Passover started. Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown, so we have to understand the days differently than our own. The Jewish Sabbath day, which is considered the seventh day of the week, begins at sundown on Friday and goes to sundown on Saturday. And multiple texts tell us that it was right before the Passover. So this particular Friday was known as the Day of Preparation. The day of preparation, you see this in verse 34, chapter 23, that was the day when the Jews were supposed to purge all the leaven from their homes. They had to get rid of every bit of yeast, so to speak, every bit of leaven. Now, we saw last week in our study that leaven represented sin. And we saw that God had, had established the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a remembrance when He delivered them from Egypt, and he passed over their homes that were covered by the blood of the spotless lamb. Remember when they were in Egypt, and he sends the plagues, and the tenth plague is, I'm going to kill the firstborn son of every house of Egypt, but you will be spared if you take a spotless lamb, and you kill it, and you take its blood, and you put it on the doorpost, the wooden doorpost, representing the cross, and when my angel comes, he will pass over your house. And as they were waiting for the Passover, they were supposed to eat the lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, representing their trust in the sacrifice of the blood, representing the removal of the bitterness of their sin and being cleansed from sin. So on the night before his death, Jesus takes unleavened bread, which represents pure life, and he takes the cup, which represents the blood that makes atonement for sin, and he gives it to those who believe in him. The symbolism is unbelievably powerful. And then he's crucified, and the day he's crucified is on the day that the sin was supposed to be purged from the homes, 
but he provides an eternal sacrifice that is able to permanently purge sin from our lives. It's a beautiful picture. His blood covers our sin. It frees us from its control. It removes the eternal penalty. But he has no power to do that unless the tomb is empty. Now, it's significant, if you look back at the text, in verse 44, that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, that darkness covers the world. Now, that's unusual because it was noon. Not exactly a time when you would expect everything to go dark for three straight hours. This couldn't have been an eclipse, couldn't have been something natural like that, because an eclipse, a full eclipse of the sun, only lasts seven or eight minutes. So three hours of darkness in the middle of the day would have been an extremely unusual event, to say the very least. But to follow it with a strong earthquake would be something really unusual. And we see in Matthew 27 that when Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks split. Now, an event like that, three hours of darkness followed by a massive earthquake, would be noted by historians, don't you think? Well, there's a historical confirmation of what Luke records here. A Greek historian named Phlegon wrote in his 16-volume Olympiads that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, a failure of the sun happened, greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night so that the stars were seen in the sky and an earthquake in Bithynia toppled many buildings in the city of Nicaea. Now, that means that the darkness and the earthquake were experienced as far away as what is now modern-day northern Turkey, over 750 miles away. So this was not just a local event in Jerusalem. It wasn't just over the walled city that it got dark and there was a little earthquake and everybody out in Galilee and Samaria and down by the Dead Sea, nothing. This This was widespread darkness and earthquake. And what's interesting about Flagon's account of this is that this was in the year of the 202nd Olympiad, which just so happens to be 33 AD, which is the year that historians have concluded that Jesus died. And I want you to notice also that it was during the sixth hour or noon, which is exactly what the text tells us. Now, this is from a Greek. This is someone that had no stake in this. This is not just from the disciples. Well, we just have the disciples' account, and they were biased, and they wanted to believe it, so so they wrote this. No, this was verified by a Greek historian. So Jesus goes before Pilate at 6 a.m. He's crucified at 9 a.m. Darkness falls at 12 p.m. He dies at 3 p.m., which meant that his body was taken down off the cross before sunset. We see that at the end of chapter 23 because the dead body had to be off the cross before the Sabbath and Passover started. Now, what does all that mean? Why do I spend three minutes telling you that? Well, in Scripture, darkness always represents sin. John 3 tells us that Jesus came as the light into the world because man loves darkness rather than light, because our works are evil. Jesus says in John 12 that whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness because he can save us and pull us out of the dominion of darkness. Ephesians 5, Colossians 1 say that we used to be partners with sin and darkness, but that we no longer walk in darkness because God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into light. And 1 John 1 says that if we still love the acts of darkness, 
We haven't really given ourselves to Christ because we've been free from darkness. So it makes sense that while Jesus is on the cross and all the sins of the world are being placed on him, that the light of the world is extinguished. And for three hours, there's darkness covering everything. And Jesus gives up his life and he dies and all seems lost. And yet, if we look at verse 45, there's another event that takes place at the same time that has powerful significance. Look back at it. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, this huge curtain, like these curtains up here, except probably five times as thick. It was torn like a phone book, just in half, from top to bottom. What did that mean? It meant that the holy place of the temple, the place where the Ark of Covenant was kept, the place that represented the presence of God and the filling of God and the mercy of God, because on top of the Ark were two golden cherubim, and that was called the Bema Seat or the Mercy Seat. It was where the presence of God would come down on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the priest would go in and he'd have seven days of cleansing to make sure that he was clean, and he'd take the blood of a spotless lamb and he'd go into the Ark and he'd sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to make payment for the sins of the people so that God would forgive them and bring them back into right relationship. Only once a year, only one person could go in there. Now as Jesus dies and darkness covers the land, God takes the veil and he rips it open and he says, now through my son you have access. Through my son you get to come to the holy place of my mercy and Christ's blood is what now will forgive you. We have access to His presence through Christ. Hebrews 10 talks about it. It says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He opened up the access to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to remove our sin, we are no longer separated from God. We don't need a priest to go in there on our behalf because Jesus said, I am the perfect and final high priest. I am making the perfect and final sacrifice of sin and you trust in me and I will provide forgiveness and I will give you access to my presence and you will experience my mercy, not as people that walk in darkness, but as my children. Yeah, praise him for that. Praise him for that. But here's the thing. None of that matters if the tomb's not empty. God can say all he wants about that. But if sin and death can't be defeated, it doesn't matter. So what happened on the third day? Look at the text in chapter 24. The women go to the tomb. And they're expecting to use spices to embalm the dead body. The disciples are hiding. 
They're completely despondent. Jesus is gone. They didn't stop it. They ran away. They watched as he was crucified and died. They saw the darkness. They saw the earthquake. They saw uh, his body taken away. Joseph of Arimathea puts him in his own tomb and they roll a big stone and they put the seal on it and they stand Roman guards outside it and the apostles lose all hope. So the women go to the tomb hoping that somehow the Romans will be kind to them and open up the tomb so they can go in and embalm the body. But when they get there, they discover that the guards are gone and the stone covering the opening has been moved and Jesus is not there. I want you to notice that their first reaction is not hopeful or joyful. They don't remember that Jesus said on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the grave. And even after they run back and tell the disciples after the angel meets with them, the disciples are still skeptical. There's, there was little or, or no expectation. I think we've got to say no expectation that Jesus was going to be resurrected. But then they hear the words of the angels. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And it all becomes clear. Hear that question this morning. Why would you look for death where it's been defeated? Why would you look for the one who carried our sins to the grave and put sin to death and overcame it with holiness and provided forgiveness where there is no hope? Why would you expect anything other than life and life eternal? See, the question, it it struck me this week, the question has the confident tone of, listen, the facts are so obvious and the reality is so certain. Why would you think anything else? Why would you come here with spices? His body's not here. Of course he's going to defeat death. He told you he was going to do that. And here's where we see the power of the resurrection and the saving authority of Jesus Christ. Because if his body is still in the tomb, all that he said means nothing. He's just a fraud and a powerless, non-life-changing fraud at that. But because the tomb is empty, everything changes. Because that tomb is empty, Sin thought it had won the battle and the devil was smug as he watched Jesus die. But in 44 hours, Jesus secured salvation. We were under bondage. We were unable to save ourselves. We were without hope. But in 44 hours, Jesus bought us from sin and rescued us from death and offered us eternal hope. And no longer do we have to walk in darkness because in 44 hours, the light of the world gave us the full assurance of our faith. And that changes Everything, it changes how you think, how you act, how you live, what you value, how you treat other people, how you view eternity. Because what Jesus did is he offered us radical change. Listen now to the, most, to, to the four most important areas of our life. I want us to look at some passages, and you can turn, but time is tight, so I I won't ask you, but if you want to, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Let me give you, just as I conclude, four simple thoughts of of where Jesus' resurrection changes our life. The first area is that he changes our relationship with God. If you don't want to turn, the passages will be on the screen. But notice, first of all, 
that Jesus' resurrection changes our relationship with God. From the moment of man's first sin in the Garden of Eden to the proud rebellion at Babel, to the, to the unrestrained, unashamed nastiness at Sodom and Gomorrah, to the defiant rebellion of Israel, to the killing of Jesus Christ, to the arrogant self-sufficiency of the Greek culture, to the open indifference of the time that we live in, man has constantly set himself against God. And the more sin is present, listen now, it has a dulling effect on our hearts and minds, and the enemy tells his lies, and he tries to lure us away from what is good and beneficial, and he tries to pull us from the one who loves us more than we can imagine, and take the bait of believing that the lie that God doesn't care and God's unfair. That has a cumulative effect. But look at this text. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 1. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. Sin alienates us from God. It makes our hearts hostile and resistant, and sin becomes more appealing. But through Christ, God offers to purify us from sin and reconcile us as people who in His sight are blameless. Listen, if you are stuck in sin this morning, God can deliver you from it. You are living a lie. You are living a delusion. I'm not saying that as a judge. I was the same way and still am. Sin is a delusion. It's a lie. It's confusing. It turns us against God. But God says, oh, I can change you. I can reconcile you to myself if you will walk away and confess that sin and turn your life over to me. He has absolutely no reason to do that. Yet as we saw Friday, He does it because He loves us. And because He's gracious and compassionate. And we can't do this on our own. We would be fools to think that we can save ourselves. But through Jesus Christ, He goes to the cross in our place and He puts sin to death and He puts death to death And he says, your relationship can be restored with me forever. Here, let me prove it. I'm going to tear the veil open. The second area that he radically changes us is in our relationship with sin. If you want to turn, it's in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Our relationship with sin is changed. Let me read as you turn. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we will no longer be slaves to sin, for he who died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. 
Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. When we trust him, that old self that's full of sin, that he took to the cross and put to death, is destroyed. And we are freed from the death sentence. But we're not only freed from spiritual death, it's not just the positive on one side. Not only are we freed from death, but we're also given eternal life. Now that impacts every area of our lives. As He gives us a new nature, He gives us His nature, that changes our hearts and minds from selfish to selfless. If you're a believer this morning and you remember, what was my life like before Christ? There's only one word that characterized it, and the word is selfish. Anytime we sin, anytime we move away from the goodness of God, all we are doing is saying, I'm better than you, I want my way, it's my way or nobody's way, so I'm going to do what I want. And that's the, that's the scent of hell that pushed sin and pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because the devil is always saying, he stood up to God and said, I want to be as great as you. I want to be better than you. I want to take over this place. Little spiritual coup d'etat. I'm in charge now. God says, I don't think so. I created you. How dare you rebel against me? Get out of my sight. When we sin, we say, it's about me. And yet, here comes Christ. And the reflection of what he has done is the reality of how we live that new life. We're supposed to see sin as dead to us. We're not supposed to keep walking back into the jail cell that used to hold us and slam it shut and say, I'm so much happier in here. He says, I freed it. I'd open it up. Don't go back. Why would you go back? Why would you believe sin's lie and temptation? I've given you the ability to walk in holiness. Now love me more than anything. Love me more than anything. Love me more than yourself. And let me add to it, love, love other people more than yourself. Let's really make it clear. Why don't you do anything but live for yourself? And you will never be more content or more full of joy than when you live that way. He's the one that did that. Not us. Third, our relationship with eternity has changed. Titus chapter 3, don't turn, just look at the screen. In Titus 3, he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis, listen now, of the deeds that we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or declared righteous by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we trust in Christ, our relationship with eternity changes. And it's all based on what Christ did. He saved us not when we were good. He saved us when we were His selfish enemies. And it's only because of His kindness and His love and His mercy that He has washed my filthy life away and given us a new life. And then He says, let's seal it. I'm going to give you my Spirit and He's going to indwell you and He's going to change you in any way. So if you ever have doubt, was this really real? You just understand that my Spirit is your seal. 
choir sang it. I am saved by your mercy. I am transformed by your love. How many know how awesome that truth is this morning? Not, I am saved by my wonderful works. I am transformed because I'm so awesome. No, that's just foolishness. I'm saved by your mercy. I'm transformed by your love. I'm washed by Christ's blood. I'm given a new life by your spirit. My relationship with eternity changes. And there's one more thing. We're done. My passions change. What I love, what I value. It's in 1 John 1. He says, what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Our fellowship has changed. What does that mean? That means that now we want to be near the Lord, pleasing Him in every way. Now we want to do this. We want to be with the body of Christ, those who love the Lord like we do, those who are living for the Lord as rebels against this culture, as nonconformists against what the world says is right. We're going to be the ones who are going to honor Christ the way that we live, and we're going to tell others about it so they'll do the same thing. Because our passions and our fellowship has changed. That means what I love, what I value, what I desire has to change considerably from what it was before. Because if I still love the same things that I used to love before I was saved, it's a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. My life has been changed. Your life has been changed. Our lives are His. So now we're supposed to live to honor and please Him. Fellowship with the Father. See, right after... The disciples got the news that Jesus was alive. Matthew records that the angel says, Jesus is going before you to Galilee, and he wants to fellowship with you there. It seems a little strange that he didn't want to meet them in Jerusalem. Or that he didn't say, hey, you know, let's, let's get away from the crowds. It's been a little dicey the last couple of days. Let's, let's go down to the desert. Maybe down by the Dead Sea. Nobody wants to be down there. It's hot. Let's find a cave somewhere and we can talk. He says, meet me in Galilee. Back where it all started. And I tried to imagine last night as I was finishing what, what the disciples were feeling as they walked north. Joy, hope, contentment, excitement, mixed with just a little bit of, oh, why didn't we believe when the women came and tell us? In fact, why weren't we there? Why weren't we sitting there as it began to dawn on the first day of the week? Because he said, on the third day I'm rising again. Why, why weren't we there? And yet, as they walked, they knew that there's nothing better than being near the Lord. Jesus said, come. Meet me. I've done the work. Now you come and fellowship with me. You see, it's not enough for us to yell, Jesus is alive, if we're not willing to meet him and have fellowship with him. And the only way for that to happen is for us to accept the changes that he wants to make in our life because darkness has no fellowship 
with the light. So if we're not walking in the light, we're not walking with him. He has done everything for us. He has made possible our salvation. He has made possible our eternal life. And all we have to do is trust him with our lives. It only took him 44 hours to change everything. So I have to ask you, I'm done. This morning, are you his? Have you put your faith in him alone? Have you experienced the amazing changes that only he can provide that give you hope and confidence and the full assurance of faith? Or are you here this morning, and I'm so glad you are, are you here this morning saying, Paul, I'm struggling, I'm still stuck in sin, I'm messed up, my mind is confused, I don't feel confident, I'm estranged, everything is off. And I'm telling you right now, you can walk out that door this morning and look at that lake and the sun shining upon it, and you can have a brand new life. You can have eternity secured for you right now. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do a bunch of things and say a bunch of prayers and go to a bunch of church services and and help a bunch of people. Those things are wonderful. We should do those. But Christ took care of it all. He did it all. He secured it all. And He says, come to Me. Have fellowship with Me. I've made it possible. I've opened up access. The blood has been put on the mercy seat. You can be saved forever. Just come to Me. Oh, I pray, if you've never done that, that today will be the day. I pray, as we pray in a moment, that you will just say, God, save me. I I get it. I am a sinner. You offer to save me by grace, so I trust in you. Save me. And if you do that this morning, oh, come talk to me. I want to pray with you and encourage you. Others will be up here to pray and encourage you. And we'll get you going. Because you can walk out the doors a different person. And for those of us that love him, oh, we love him, don't we? Don't we love him? He's so good. Let's live in complete devotion to him. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we thank you this morning. What an amazing thing you have done. Where would we be without you this morning? We are saved by your mercy. We're transformed by your love. There's no other hope. And we praise you this morning that you didn't leave us stuck in our sin and stuck in darkness and stuck in a path to hell. But because of your love and your mercy, you gave Christ. He bore our sins willingly, voluntarily, joyfully on the cross. And then he defeated sin and death forever. So Lord, we exalt you today. We praise you and magnify you. And Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, move in this room. Lord, if there is someone here that has never put their confidence in you, or Lord has prayed at one point and and thought, you know, I want to follow Christ, but but they've turned back. This morning, transform their hearts. This morning, Father, 
convict them to cry out to you and say, God, save me. I want to be different. I want to be a new person with hope based on Christ. Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us and you couldn't have proven it more fully. So Lord, on this resurrection day, we praise you that Jesus Christ is alive. And we praise you for what it means. It means that we have hope. We honor you and exalt you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.